0: Good morning. This is your community radio station, WERU, and welcome to Healthy Options, a program that focuses on integrative therapies. I'm Andre Bella, and I'll be your host today. This morning, we'll be speaking with Dr. Christian Northrup, author of Mother Daughter Wisdom Understanding the Crucial Link Between Mothers, Daughters, and Health, published by Bantam Books. Dr. Northrup is the best-selling author of Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, and The Wisdom of Menopause. A board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist with more than 25 years of clinical experience, she trained at Dartmouth Medical School and Tufts New England Medical Center. Her work has been featured on the Oprah Winfrey Show, The Today Show, and Good Morning America among many other media performances. She lives in Maine and is the mother of two adult daughters. Welcome, Dr. Northrup. Thank you. Mothers and Daughters, a subject near and dear to my heart. (laughs) I enjoyed the book very, very much, and I found your format very interesting. Would you like to talk a little bit about how you organized this book?
1: Yes, this was actually the biggest challenge, because what I wanted to do was create a book that would work for any woman, to remother herself and to fill in some of these skip areas that all of us have because we don't get the mother we want usually. We get the mother we need to, um, to promote our optimal growth in all areas. So I wanted the book to be very authoritative, medical, and so on because I had worked for so many years, and I'd seen that my influence as an OBGYN physician paled, in comparison to the influence a mother had already had on her daughter. And I came up with, along with my colleague, Dr. Mona Lisa Schultz, um, an idea of using a house as the metaphor for our lives. You know, women always dream of houses, and the house is actually the metaphor for the self, for the soul. And so the foundation for our entire lives is created by our relationship with our mother. So the foundation of the house, the basement, as it were, uh, is your pregnancy with your mother, and then the stairway up to the first floor of the house is the birth canal. If you're adopted, you come in a side door, though the influence of your birth mother will always be there in the cells. And then I had posited that we move through each of the rooms of our lives in about seven years, and there's a huge literature on the seven-year cycle. Uh, the Jesuits said, show me a, a boy at the age of seven, and I will show you the man he will become. The Jesuits weren't training women at that time. Um, in a Native American culture, there's a seven-year cycle. Rudolf Steiner, the uh, founder of the Waldorf schools, uses seven-year cycles, and girls are a little earlier, so sometimes with girls it's five or six, not seven, so there's nothing etched mm-hmm. in stone there. But then the second big transition, the next birth canal after the original one, they're, they're, each room is like um, a womb, and you, you must uh, learn the tasks of that room, and then you labor and birth yourself into the next room. But the big, big, big birth canals are our own birth. Um, perimenopause, when you move to the second floor of your life, and then finally when you're moving to the rooftop of your life and the transition into the afterlife. So those were the, those are the three big birth canals when the ability to reinvent ourselves is absolutely huge. Um, the Wisdom of Menopause obviously covers the perimenopausal stairway. <laughs> right. So that's how I organized the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I particularly enjoyed the book because not only is it a wonderful reference book, um, a large book with lots of information and a wonderful index, but I especially appreciated uh, your personal contributions in the book. Um, And I I wonder if you would talk a little bit about your personal motivation in writing the book and how you um, felt about putting in your own personal information in the book.
1: That is such a great question. Um, First of all, I have found that the personal is political, obviously, and that which is the most subjective and the most personal is often the most universal. It is um, how we relate to people by our stories, by our history. Um, Medical texts tend to be very, very dry, and um, when you read a medical study, it's it was found that, you know, it was found as though, as though the person doing the experiment or the study can be removed from the findings of the study. We know in physics, the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, that the observer always changes what is observed. So to me, as a scientist, failing to put in my own experience felt on scientific, also makes it far less more fun to write and Mm -hmm. far less more fun to read. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we remember people's stories, don't we?
0: We do remember people's stories, yes. That's what we
1: remember. I mean, you don't remember uh, credentials. You remember a story they told. And you know, in my years and years of practice in South Portland and then in Yarmouth, Maine, I remembered always the particular stories that women told me, even if I didn't remember their names, I read, would remember birth stories or stories of healing that they would tell me. Uh, I never forget those because that's how we are human and that's how we relate. So to me, it was the only honest thing to do so that people knew that this book didn't come out of a vacuum, that my experience as a physician, my experience as a daughter, my experience as a mother, all held equal weight, though the MD degree and the OBGYN training certainly gave me authoritative knowledge, but women know the stuff in their bones, and my job is just to point it out as a medical authority to give them the authority back. Mm
0: -hmm. I think that personal kind of style women relate to so well, um, it makes it personal and and women are able to really use that as far as healing their own bodies. And we could do a whole other show on uh, physicians and the manner in which they deal with, with their patients. But this book was particularly um, appealing to me because of the approach that, that you used in it. Um Let's talk a little bit about motherhood. Boy, you had one quote in your book that I really liked, and you said, motherhood is hot, and we certainly have seen some uh, changes in the cultural image of motherhood lately. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yes, and I I want you to – I have a friend, uh, a guy who can't – (laughs) Dan <laughs> the word baby bump. You know the bump that that we're using now in the media. Yeah, uh, like so and so's bump <laughs> when he's working out <laughs> on his treadmill. He'll yell up to his wife, "Bump!" <laughs> he <can't> stand it. <laughs> so I have to laugh when I hear about you know celebrity babies and all of it. Is uh, it's so in now? It's so hot. It's very funny to me, and I think uh, very positive because. There was a time, and I remember my mother's maternity clothes, for instance, Mm -hmm. when there was this string that you tied right above the pubic bone, and then the the belly part was, um, no, I guess the string was up higher. I don't know. But anyway, they were just ugly, Mm -hmm. and you weren't supposed to go out. I mean, in the 50s, pregnant women were supposed to be banished so that you didn't see them. Mm -hmm. It was considered obscene.
0: And in my um, day you always wore something voluminous, you know, oh, over your <laughs> yes. to cover everything up.
1: <laughs> That's right. And uh, they were just starting to come up with some pretty nice pull-on pregnancy pants when I was pregnant, but now they've got, you know, the pee and the pot and the pregnancy boutiques and
0: <laughs> It's great. It's,
1: it's great because women can start to celebrate how they look when Mm -hmm. they're pregnant Mm -hmm. really early. I don't have a single picture of me pregnant with uh, either of my children. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, and this could be over the top, I don't know, (laughs) but now women are scheduling photo shoots where they go to a photographer and they have these um, photos taken of them as uh, the earth mother. It's sort of part of the the baby book.
0: I think it's great. Yeah. I what mean, a, what a positive way for women to view their bodies. Well, thank God, because, you know, for so long it was, well, I, you know, I'm going to look
1: fat and I don't want to look pregnant. And right. now, now they want to look pregnant, you know, when they just get the positive pregnancy test. It's great. That's a great thing. It, it is really a, it is. It is
0: a great thing. Yeah. Now, still on on the topic of motherhood, um, would you comment a little bit on what you had to say about C sections? Because I thought that was pretty important for listeners oh, yeah. to hear.
1: Yeah. Here's the thing: the cesarean section rate now is way out of control in many academic centers. It's thirty percent. Um, it is estimated by the World Health Organization that really, truly, for a, a mother-friendly institution, a C-section rate should be no higher than 10 to 15 percent max. Um, C-section has a mortality rate that's much higher than vaginal birth. We do not have the the studies, unless we did a prospective, controlled, double-blind study of assigning one woman to a C-section, the next woman to labor and birth normally, we wouldn't be able to compare the two in terms of pelvic floor damage um, and this sort of thing. So Women are now being told, oh, you know, it'll save your pelvic floor, you won't get urinary stress incontinence, you won't get fecal incontinence. The vast majority of women, if they are birthing with great support, the bottom of the body is designed to open beautifully and healthfully and not cause urinary stress incontinence. The vast majority of women don't get that. But now those things are being used as reasons to have an elective cesarean section. There's a whole new uh, thing called maternal choice cesarean section. But truly, if women were given all of the pros and cons, very few women would choose major surgery. We also know that the risk of stillbirth is increased in subsequent pregnancies if you've had a C-section. The reason for that is that the scar in the uterus can cause abnormalities in the placenta in the subsequent pregnancies. There's also far more risk of bowel obstruction, bleeding. The maternal mortality rate is going up in the United States. It's something that we all need to be concerned about, and it's because of the overuse of technology. And that's something that both uh, doctors and patients Play into equally so I don't this is not something I'm blaming on the medical profession it has to do with malpractice it has to do with fear Uh, it has to do with women um, just not understanding their birth power I've written extensively about this in mother-daughter wisdom also including an enormous number of studies documenting the dangers of cesarean birth so that women understand their options
0: Yeah, I always thought that having a C-section was something you did at an emergency situation at the last minute if you had, you know, other difficulties, but what you're saying is it's elective.
1: It's it's becoming, um, well, the other thing that's on the increase is inductions, labor inductions Mm -hmm. for convenience, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that you can know when to Mm -hmm. tell your mother-in-law to fly in and so on. And I did say in the book, um, Mm -hmm. you know, pardon me, but... Motherhood is really not inconvenient and uh, not convenient. And if you can't inconvenience yourself for the onset of labor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how are you going to deal with motherhood?
0: My mother, I mean, as, a, as a young, very young mother, had that situation where she was advised because of convenience of hospital space to have an induced labor. And when I was pregnant the first time, my mother said, never, 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 never have an induction if you don't absolutely need it for some medical reason. <laughs> Good
1: for her. Yes, yes. Yeah, to me, the timing of, you know, when a baby's pituitary gland decides its time is this sacred contract between a mother and the child. Mm-hmm. It's not for the convenience of the hospital staff.
0: Right. Babies arrive on their schedule. They
1: do. And you know, yes. it's fascinating. Uh, the United States is one of the only Western countries that doesn't use midwives primarily for normal birth. In the Netherlands, normal home birth with midwives attending is the norm, mm-hmm. not the other way around. And their perinatal mortality rate, infant mortality rate, and so on is... Uh, much lower than in the
0: United States, and they spend far less money. So we're a little off here. So how have we gotten away from that? Yeah, I mean, nowadays, if you mention midwives, people think that's something really unusual. But how did how do we get away from that?
1: Oh, it's a huge history. <laughs> that's a whole other
0: show, right? <laughs>
1: it's a it's a whole other show, but it was mm-hmm. a, you know a fairly systematic, um, well, you know, a systematic brainwashing, really of. Um, choosing technology over nature. Mm-hmm. Now, th- now remember, I'm board-certified in OBGYN, so mm-hmm. I've certainly done my share of cesareans and episiotomies, which mm-hmm. don't need to be done, by the way. We now know that. All they do is increase uh, bleeding and pain. Um, but I learned all of that, and the things that I learned are life-saving. They're wonderful things when they're needed, mm-hmm. and that's the whole crux of it. You see... When, um, you know, when we are trained to do something, then you tend to overdo something. Mm-hmm. And then the atmosphere that I trained in was that a normal birth was a retrospective diagnosis, mm-hmm. meaning that you you had the the training that everything could go to, go to hell uh, in two seconds and that this came out of the blue and that there was no uh, predicting who was going to get into trouble. But that is not true. Mm-hmm. We, we we can know who's going to get into trouble. Actually, uh, the studies have been done by psychological
0: factors. Mm-hmm. So there's so, a lot of misinformation around this subject.
1: Yes, there yes. is. But luckily, there's a very viable normal birth um, ethos that's coming along. I think it's very good in Maine. There were oh, yes. wives In the hospital. Yes, you know, we Maine do. Maine is uh, on the forefront always mm-hmm. of holistic health, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. For those of you who have just joined us, we're listening to, you're listening to WERU's Healthy Options. And today we're speaking with Dr. Christian Northrup. She's the author of Mother Daughter Wisdom, Understanding the Crucial Link Between Mothers, Daughters, and Health. And um, the other next subject I want to talk about, another controversial one, one we've done other shows on too, is about vaccinations. What's your feelings about vaccinations for children?
1: Um, well, let me be honest about my own personal experience. Mm I, um, had studied with, uh, Keith Block, who is a physician in Chicago. And this was back when my children were just born in the early eighties. And he showed all of the data that suggests very strongly that, the incidence of the major childhood illnesses, for instance, polio was on the way down when the polio vaccine was introduced. There, it's a very rich uh, literature on vaccinations, but the, the choice that I made was to um, minimalize vaccinations for my own children. I'm very concerned that vaccinations do not create normal immunity, the same kind of immunity that one would have if you were exposed to the, the virus or the germ,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, most children who are exposed to a virus or a germ do not get the disease. You know, 90% of us have cold virus in our throats at all times. We don't get cold.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We, 90% of us have pneumonia germs in our throats. So it has to do with uh, the ecosystem of germs. That's what keeps us well. So one child has a few immunizations, and the other child had absolutely none until she finally went to camp at the age of 17 and needed a tetanus vaccine, and I said, okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, the child who didn't get the vaccinations was much healthier than the child who did, Mm -hmm. and I'm very concerned about the link between over-vaccinating children and autism. Um, I just read in the Portland Press-Herald that the incidence of autism in Maine, I think, has doubled since 2000. I'm just enormously concerned. We're vaccinating for chickenpox. We're vaccinating for everything. And there is uh, there's still thymersol in the vaccines. That's a form of mercury, uh, not to mention all kinds of other things in vaccines. I think we've gone overboard, and I'm just very concerned about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other ways to be healthy. I mean, in, I, vaccines have helped people feel safer. And I think that's good. But when you have a vaccination schedule where there are what? I don't know what I said in the book. Well, that's
0: so one. many vaccinations for such young children. That's what
1: we're talking about. That you're, you're pounding the <laughs> immune system mm-hmm. with all of these uh, foreign substances within the first three months of life. Mm-hmm. This is insane. So I would wait as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And... The healthiest thing for a child is to be in contact with all the germs in the mother's environment, be placed skin-to-skin skin on the mother's body at birth so that the child becomes colonized with normal bacteria as soon as possible, and that really helps the immune system. Also, of course, breastfeeding is very, very important.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I'd also like to talk, while we're talking about birth, you have a wonderful section in your book about your postpartum program, and maybe we can also tie that in with emotions um, and how emotions affect our health. Yes. Big subject.
1: Okay. Let's start with the postpartum program. And I think that um, obviously postpartum depression is very real. It was brought to the public consciousness in a big way by Brooke Shields, who actually had more of a postpartum psychosis I don't know how she's doing with this next baby. It tends to recur, but um, hopefully all is well. Um, postpartum, the, my postpartum mothering program is, is based on the fact that we all need an outer placenta of people, places, and things to support us. No one is an island, and the placenta is the organ of relationship that created our bodies and created our relationship with our mothers. When a baby is born, a mother herself needs a placenta to nourish her. So the first thing is to get as much rest as possible. I didn't do that. I was in my macho years then. I had just completed a surgical residency, so I thought that rest was for wusses. Plus, I'd been up all night every third night for four years, so having a baby seemed easy to me. In retrospect, having the baby was much harder than the surgical residency. So let me just put that out there to all new mothers <laughs> you're going through one of the hardest you need things rest. That you can go through, <laughs> then wear your baby. Um, it's very important for um, all of us in society to realize that the baby is not fully cooked when it's born. Yeah. Um, the, the fourth trimester is the first three months of life, and the baby still needs to develop and needs to Use your body as its placenta. It's an external fetus. I'm very, again, I I see all this baby stuff that people have, you know, all the huge Rolls-Royce strollers and all of the this and all of the that, um, and the child is kind of pushed out into the world. When you go to a country like Africa, you watch the women um, wearing their children yes. up till the age of two, mm-hmm. and the children are never fussing or crying.
0: Mm-hmm. I always loved those really close baby carriers. Yeah, the front, the front ones in the beginning, and then uh, I always carried my kids on my back for a long, long time. Oh, that's what. Yes. And they loved it.
1: Yeah, we did the they same. And I'm not, I'm not seeing that. What I'm seeing is mm-hmm. that everyone thinks that they. No, I'm not talking about Maine. This is when I go to New York City or something. <laughs> um, but I see these amazingly complex strollers and carriages Mm. and it's gotten so people think that to have a baby you really have to spend a thousand dollars on something to carry it well it made me
0: wear our babies that's it (laughs) with (laughs) pride that's right i also like that comment that you made i hadn't ever thought about it uh we think oh when you put the baby down for a nap the room should be quiet (laughs) I, I loved what you had to say about well, that. Well, yes, because, you know,
1: the womb is not quiet. The womb is as noisy as having a vacuum cleaner going right beside your head. <laughs> Think about it. So, so the best way to calm a baby is to have that shushing sound. A shushing sound is good. I really um, recommend the, the uh, work of Harvey Karp, um, and I have given Harvey's main things uh, in the book, where you uh, to calm the baby, you want to elicit its own calming reflex. You press the head down a bit so that it gets in a fetal position. You swaddle the baby. You wrap them so that they feel like they're in the womb. You make that shushing sound, and then you rock the baby, which automatically brings them back to that feeling of being in the womb. Mm -hmm. Uh, Harvey Karp's got a great DVD that helps people. It's called The Happiest Baby on the Block. And he points out, I think this is so important, that colic is unheard of in the third world where people wear their babies.
0: How interesting. They don't have it, and it's
1: because we are expecting babies to uh, develop uh, away from our bodies in these sterile environments and so on. When you wear the baby, when you rock the baby, when you pretty much have them on you, they don't get this colic. Now, he also has uh, wonderful... um, suggestions for getting a baby to sleep. Um, I'm a kind of a family bed person, but he mm-hmm. acknowledges that there are those people who are simply uncomfortable with that, and there are ways you can train your baby to, to sleep so that you're not completely frazzled, and that's important.
0: Mm-hmm. You have to um, be comfortable.
1: We, yeah, yeah. Now, I wanted to talk about emotions because postpartum, your, your emotions just come up. From the inside and it's like you wear them on the outside of your body labor opens you up so that you become enormously intuitive and tuned into your child the challenge of that is that everything that comes up in labor that turns you inside out is also all of your own experiences of your own birth and your own relationship with your mother so did you go through this or were you a lot you just,
0: of a lot of heavy stuff there comes up. A lot yeah. of heavy stuff comes up. Yes. You want
1: your mother there mm-hmm. primarily. You want your mother there, but if she's not a mother who you can rely on, that's a setup for postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Because you have this mama mama this longing, mm-hmm. but the person who shows up is a person who's not equipped to be the mother that you need. Mm-hmm. And then that you're so fragile and so inside out that that kind of becomes crushing. Oh, my God. Um, And that's what is the setup for postpartum mood disorders. Also, um, if there is any lack of emotional, physical, or psychological support, a difficult labor and birth, um, I believe.
0: That's a setup, yeah.
1: Yeah, that this overuse of uh, epidural anesthesia not enough support in labor and birth, and a woman not experiencing the empowering birth that she knows in her bone marrow is possible, Mm -hmm. that's a setup for postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. And then we know that that can have profound effects on the baby, obviously, because the child is looking to the mother to set the tone for their whole life. And if a mother is not available, then you need a mother surrogate. And let me point out right away that humans can bond with other people's babies beautifully. So if there's a grandmother, if there's a sister, if there's an aunt, if there's a father, if there's somebody who's keyed into the emotional needs of the child, that child can thrive even if the mother is, uh, <clears throat> has to go off and do some healing for a while.
0: Right. And I think part of the message here is that maybe be prepared. Think about this ahead of time if you're thinking about having a child, if you are pregnant. Um, maybe think about some of these things and realize that this is a perfectly normal experience and that there are things that you can do to make it a very powerful, empowering experience. Because as women, we are creators, not only of babies, but of books and ideas and many other things. So we have great creative power here.
1: You know, I recently did an interview for a film that's called Orgasmic Birth. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: the film had interviewed many women who'd gone through an extended orgasm during birth it's very important for women to understand that this creative energy, which also is seen in, uh, like you said, a creative project like a novel, is related to sexuality, Mm -hmm. and birth is sexual. Mm -hmm. And when something like an extended orgasm is actually available as the baby comes through the vaginal canal, then we're missing out on huge power because of the fear and I loved doing this interview because just putting the two things together, orgasmic and birth, kind of shifts the grid in people's heads. Right. Yeah.
0: Very much so. And that great empowering spirit for women is something that um, hasn't always been honored in our culture, but we're seeing a lot more of it. <laughs> it's a lot more of it.
1: Up, it's coming up in a huge way now. Mm-hmm. And I, what I want to really point out to all the listeners is that because there's great misunderstanding around this. When women become empowered, everybody benefits. Yes. Uh, men, children, the planet. Mm-hmm. It's never about, oh, now the women are taking over. Mm-hmm. It's not that mm-hmm. at all. It's, uh, because, because women are creative, creative, because we are where the human race comes from, we naturally thrive when everybody is doing well.
0: So it's win-win for everybody. It's
1: win-win for everyone, and that's such an important concept to get across. I remember back in the early days when I started to talk about women's empowerment, people would say, well, what about the men? And I didn't have the language then. I, I knew that women needed to own their own histories. They needed to acknowledge their wounds and so on. And then over time I realized that The same culture that puts down women puts down the feminine in men, and they're not allowed to feel either. It does everyone a disservice. But when women Mm -hmm. become empowered, everybody benefits.
0: That's right. That's right. Uh, For those of you who have just joined us, we're listening to WERU Healthy Options. And today we're speaking with Dr. Christian Northrup, who is the author of Mother-Daughter Wisdom, Understanding the Crucial Link Between Mothers, Daughters, and Health. And now let's talk about those wonderful daughters. I have a 17-year-old daughter who I think is just wonderful. And so what are some ways that we promote um, healthy relationships With our daughters,
1: well, the first thing is this: Um, you need to have a healthy relationship with yourself, and that it all starts there. When a mother likes herself, when a mother likes her life, when a mother takes time to pursue her own the things that bring her pleasure and joy, she's a role model for her daughter. Now, this is um, challenging because when your kids are little, you really do put your own needs on the back burner for a while. The problem with it is that that can become a habit. And by the time they've left for college, you don't know who you are anymore because you've put your own needs on the back burner for so long. So I would recommend make sure you maintain your own hobbies. Make sure that you have some time for yourself as a mother. Role model this for her because then she will know that she can do it too. What you keep resisting about your mother, if there's something about your mother that you didn't like, believe me, you will pass that same thing on to your own daughter if you don't heal it within yourself first. So a pattern that I have seen over and over and over is that a woman in her 40s, 50s, let's say that she still has unfinished business with her World War II generation mother, if she doesn't clean that up, she will become the same problem for her daughter that her mother is for her. Yes. So you're you're always updating the legacy. And the areas that aren't working for you with your mother, you work on within yourself. Most mothers, World War II generation mothers, this is women in their 70s, 80s, aren't going to change. This is really important information. I
0: know that. Yes, yeah. I do.
1: they are not going to change. <laughs> Um, So we have to change, and that means that if your primary relationship with them is built around guilt and her complaining that you're not there enough or that you're not doing enough or you're not the kind of mother she was, um, you need to look at the parts of you that that pushes the buttons that that pushes in you. Oh, my God, I'm not good enough or I'm not doing it right. Because remember, that generation really was into self-sacrifice because that's what was going on on the planet. My mother, who's 80, said, you can't imagine what it was like compared to now. Uh, She couldn't take out a loan in her own name.
0: That's right. Mm -hmm.
1: They had no voice, and it was all about the men all the time. So this was, remember, they came of age before the women's movement, the second wave of the women's movement, and... So obviously, now, the baby boomer daughters uh, came out, and that was the don't trust anyone over 30, and it was the second wave of the feminist movement, and we were going to have equal pay for equal work and take back the night and all the stuff that happened in the late 60s and 70s for civil rights, women's rights, you name it. So we were going to go out there and have a job and be not mom. We were going to be everything except mom. Now what's happening is this next generation, our daughters, are realizing, well, that sucked. I mean, my mother didn't have time for herself at all. She worked. She had me. Right. She ended up... um, Women took on
0: two full-time jobs. That's it. (laughs) That's it. And
1: nothing seemed to change with the men Mm -hmm. because, you know, we didn't really... We haven't really had enough time um, for this evolution. I believe that the daughters of the baby boomers, your daughter, my daughter's, are, are going to move into more balance. But it was absolutely necessary, all the stages that we, that we have gone through with our mothers, with us, now with this new generation. And all of it, all of it, is about finally questioning martyrdom and self-sacrifice because those things are deadening to joy. Mm-hmm. They're deadening to life. They're deadening to health. Mm-hmm. Self, self-sacrifice and martyrdom are associated with heart disease and breast disease, and lung disease. And those are the things that kill the vast majority of women. One in two women will have heart disease.
0: Women need to hear that in in capital letters. I know you and I, when we were talking on the phone the other day, we were talking about how we had both gone through very challenging divorces. And the way we handled those divorces um, perhaps brought out uh, qualities and talents in us that you know, we didn't even know we had, and our daughters were observing that. So even though you may be going through a challenging situation, um, sharing that with your daughter can be a very, very positive thing. Well, you know, speaking
1: of sharing with my daughter, one of the things that I was doing as I was going through the divorce uh, was something that so many women do, which is a, a beautiful quality. I was trying to protect them from the particulars, from the nitty-gritty, from some of the really unpleasantries around money. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine said to me, if you don't share with them some of your fears, some of your worries, some of your struggles, you are actually modeling martyrdom to them and self-sacrifice. I was trying to um, protect them from my own emotions, Mm. my, my so grief, difficult. my sadness,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and I also was trying very hard, and I know all women can relate, to keep my household like it had been. The girls were 16 and 18 at the time. The oldest was going off to college. So basically her first chakra, the, the people, places, and things who'd formed her identity were crumbling around her. I mean, you know, her parents' marriage so I wanted the house to stay the same, and I wanted their life to stay the same, and I was doing everything to keep it stable. That year, interestingly enough, we had three car accidents. You know, I think I had two yep. fender benders and the girls mm-hmm. had one. Very common when you're going through a rocky time oh, yes. that, you know <laughs> that the energy needs to go somewhere. But things began to turn around for me when I stopped trying to be so stoic and stopped trying to make it all better. Mm-hmm. And simply let them see my vulnerability.
0: Yes. Oh, that is so true. That is so very true. Because (laughs) if you don't let them see your vulnerability and see that you're a real human being, just like they are, you set up so much tension that's totally unnecessary. A perfect way of bonding is for them to be able to see you really working hard, really having a passion at something, but also being a real vulnerable human being. It's the best it's right
1: and then what happens is their own stronger part comes in it helps them grow up Mm -hmm. you know and that was the beginning of the change for me and then I went through what so many women go through oh my god I've wrecked their lives why couldn't mm. I have held my marriage together? But, you know, what,
0: what, are the, what are the choices there? Um, staying in an abusive relationship that isn't working, where you feel that there's an element of martyrdom and self-sacrifice, would we choose that? I, no, no. I, I don't think so.
1: No, but in my yeah. case, I was so um, addicted, I think we could use that word,
2: mm-hmm.
1: addicted to the white picket fence, addicted to um, having it all look right, Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, having the family look a certain way, and um, so I was very much, I have, uh, you know, four planets in Libra, I'm all about the relationship, and to um, have that all crumble down, first of all, it was the greatest gift from my soul ever, but at the time, it's kind of like going through labor, uh once you see the baby, it's all worth it. But, boy, when you're going through it, sometimes you want to just say, I'm not doing this. I'm, I'm out right.
0: of here. Look, looking back on it is much better. <laughs> yes, looking yes. back on it now, I, right. I say thank you. Yes, thank I you. certainly found out I had enormous strengths that I didn't know that I ever had, and especially that piece you talked about on the financial part. You oh, know, yes. I, I think with our daughters growing up, it's so important for them to understand um, the new buzzword, I think, is financial literacy. Um, That they do understand how finances work so that um, so many women in the past have been economic hostages. That's what I call them. And and I think with that financial literacy piece, um, girls can develop a new sense of independence that will serve them well their entire lives, no matter what kinds of relationships they choose or careers they choose or whatever. That's an essential piece, and I wish our schools covered that a lot more. You know, actually,
1: there's free software for schools that Robert Kiyosaki has on his website, richdad.com. They actually have a game, Cash that's flow f- for Kids.
0: Oh, I love cash flow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah, great and game. And it's free. Yeah. I mean, they have a school program that's free. Terrific. Um, but I agree with you about that. Now, Kiyosaki's background, and he was one of the ways that I taught myself financial literacy and then taught it to my kids, and that was all happening while I was writing the book. You know, it's called... Okay, do the lab, then write it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he, he points out that the educational establishment is, um, in his view, one of the last really entitled unions that we have in terms of labor. So teachers have a tremendous number of benefits, um, all of which they fully deserve. But in terms of cash flow and financial literacy, because his father was the head of the uh, conventional educational system in Hawaii, he grew up with that. And so his feeling was that teachers need to learn financial literacy themselves um, in terms of understanding businesses and investing and so on, and that that doesn't actually go along with how a teacher is trained. And that is probably, he felt, why it's not in schools. But it certainly could be.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could even be part of staff development for teachers, because I think you're right, the teacher has to feel confident in that piece to be able to teach it.
1: Well, you know, I was just um, talking with a woman last night who has a website, debtfreediva.com. <laughs> and her, um, her take on the whole thing, she was an entitled Uh, young woman with a trust fund and it went away when she was 27 Ouch! and then she had to start to work and she said she resented work terribly for 13 years because she had grown up with an enormous amount of money and would get mad when her credit cards were canceled so this is important information because it's sort of the opposite but she said it all comes down to self-worth that her sense of self-worth was really not there. Mm -hmm. And when she began to understand the connection between self-worth and net worth, then she began to put together a program both for herself and for women. Very exciting what's happening with women and money and girls and money. One thing that we all know with money, you cannot buy self-worth through the right kind of jeans, the right kind of shoes. The right kind of purse, and you know, peer pressure in middle school and all of that is all about that. While girls are trying to sort out who they are, my daughters, both of whom now live in New York City, are very grateful that they grew up in Maine. Um, one of them said, "I'm so thrilled that I didn't know what a Tiffany's box looked like till I was 18, uh, because they don't—they just didn't have that degree of addiction to how it looks that they right. see." in a more
0: urban setting. and Yeah, and I think um, you begin to realize that it's not how much money you have, it's what your perspective is towards finance and toward money, your attitude toward money, whether it's an attitude of lack and you always not having enough, right. or whether you're really thinking about how am, I, how am I using this money, what is this money for? Money is energy. That's and it. the way we use it um, depends on our perspective, totally. Exactly. And exactly. I certainly and think I growing also, up in Maine's great for kids that way. Yes. I really want
1: uh, girls to know, however, that money and energy and thinking about money in a prosperous way are the ways that you begin emotionally to attract more money to yourself. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's important to, I think, that's why on page 336 I've got a whole thing on anti-prosperity programming, and how you begin to change that programming.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Maine certainly does have some pros, um, anti-prosperity programming, and <laughs> we could mm-hmm. we could lift that a little, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. For those of you who have. Um Join us um, in the middle of the program. We're listening to um, Dr. Christiane Northrup, who's the author of Dr. of Mother Daughter Wisdom: Understanding the Crucial Link Between Mothers, Daughters, and Health. And this is WERU's Healthy Options. Um, One subject I want to be sure to cover is the uh, development of morality in our daughters. Um, You have a very fascinating part of your book where you talk about uh, conventional morality versus post-conventional morality. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. The first stage of morality is pre-conventional morality, and this is about age three months to four to seven years. And it's very egocentric and um, it's black and white littering is bad don't throw your gum wrapper on the ground and the only rules that a child this age can follow are the ones that allow them to avoid punishment or disapproval if you work with the mentally challenged population you'll often see that uh, there can be this level of morality then there's conventional morality and this goes along with brain development this is about ages 4 through 7 4 to 7 through puberty and this is when a child experiences being good as living up to what others expect of her so the highest level of conventional morality is embodied in the rules and regulations of institutions so the legal system religious institutions schools and the government you follow the rules and regulations that in, that are designed actually to ensure social order and decent contact in the vast majority of people. So a child of this age, when she sees a rule being broken, she'll be very upset about it. And the the, uh, example I gave in the book is when I was driving with my friend Mona Lisa in the car and she entered the parking area of the bank through the exit only. It was a Sunday. It didn't matter. And there was no one there, but my daughter was really, really uncomfortable because she broke the rule. And the rule is just more important than than anything. Um, Then the third stage, post-conventional morality, which we hope everyone eventually gets to, but some people don't, is ages 12 to 14 into adulthood. And this is where you understand that there are shades of gray and not absolute right and absolute wrong in a given situation. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, the rules and regulations of a hospital are a perfect example of how you move from conventional morality to post-conventional morality. Um, I was in the hospital last week with a friend of the family who's 90 and who is dying, and she had these compression stockings on her legs, which she didn't like. Now, those were doctor's orders, and I knew that, and I just took them off. Um, she wanted her nails clipped, but because she had leukemia, everyone was afraid to do it, and they wanted to have a podiatrist. And I said, "Bring me a clippers, I'll do it." Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all these rules that they're there within a certain context, but they make no sense. Right? In yeah, post- kind of like conventional morality. Like it couldn't matter right. less.
0: Like, of course, you would steal the boat to save the drowning person. Like that. You know, There's obvious yeah. sense to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, the source of most moral conflicts, which I wrote, was about a disconnection between the brain and the heart, where the, the brain, mm-hmm. the intellect, goes, these are the rules. But the heart knows differently, and it's just what you said. You steal the vote to rescue the drowning person. Yes,
0: and that leads me into my very favorite part of the book, was, um, which is called Modeling Morality, the New Commandments. Yes. And I just I love that part, and I'm just going to quote number one. It's so good. It's thou shalt be guided by thine own moral compass. And I just think that's wonderful. <laughs> yes. uh, it's it's
1: yeah, terrific. It says it all right there. It does, doesn't it? Because yes. we're all born with that. Right. And we know in our heart, but I have to be really honest with everyone, with all the listeners, I don't think that I really understood my heart and really got it about my heart. Until my early fifties. <laughs> so this can take a while.
0: <laughs> I can uh, I can relate to that. Yes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> although the beauty of this is, is this for mothers and daughters. Now remember the mother is the most powerful role model for her daughter and the DNA link and the mitochondrial DNA link is very, very strong. So when a mother changes and I don't care if the mother's fifty four or eighty four, then the door is opened to her daughter for a more pleasurable healthful life Mm -hmm. and that's so important Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, and that's the reason that i wrote this book really was that i wanted to go to the very headwaters of a woman's health i had dealt with everything for so many years sexually transmitted diseases sexuality uterine tumors hysterectomy menopause pms all of it and i noticed in every case uh women had beliefs about their bodies and their behavior that were setting the stage for their health. And to get to the source of the spring that becomes the river, that becomes the ocean, Mm -hmm. you had to go back to what she had learned at her mother's breast or actually beginning in utero. And then I really believe, if you want to step it back, I believe that we choose our mothers and that we're old friends on the soul level Mm -hmm. and that uh, we're here to... um, learn unconditional love in settings in which it might not be possible to even want to visit your mother you can still love her unconditionally but you're human and that doesn't mean you need to spend more time with her and i think that's a very yes. basic misunderstanding yes. that people have
0: yes yes you know
1: because they're still the daughter setting herself up as the higher power for the mother or vice versa when everyone has their own and we're not it. Um, ultimately what I've learned is that my true source of nourishment for me is what I call the Great Mother. Uh, and that's the, always available. Always. The Earth herself. Connected. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I'm not Catholic, but I'm a big fan of the Blessed Mother, Mary. Mm-hmm. I've always felt her around me. Mm-hmm. And so I use her as my mother. But you can use whoever you want.
0: (laughs) Well, and you had so many good suggestions in your book about instilling um, this feeling of uh, confidence and connection in our daughters. And for those listening, if you read the book, um, Dr. Northrop has lots of good suggestions on how to help our daughters with um, personal responsibility and feeling uh, their empowerment and letting them know that um, it's, it's good to take risks, it's good to roll up your sleeves and just get out in the world and try things and that, you know, we all know that you can never get it wrong and you can never get it all done. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) and And that's what makes it so good. That's what makes it so very, very good. Yes. Yes. Well, and we most- have so many topics that we could talk about, and, of course, we're going to be um, coming up on our hour pretty soon. Um, a, a very big to- Well, one question I have to ask because yeah. all my friends want me to ask this. It's this question of when girls dump on mom. I love you, that question. How do, you, how do you handle that one? And I think okay. the answer to that will also be good for moms and for daughters as well. Yes. Okay,
1: so first of all, when that is beginning to happen, you can say to your daughter, this is a house where love is the primary way that we relate to each other. And what just happened there when you rolled your eyes at me was not loving. What Do you have a need that's not being met that I can help you meet? Because it is not all right with me for you to treat me that way. Now, what I did when it started to happen in my house, because I had the authority to do this, I said, if you continue to do this, or if I see your friends doing this to me in the house, because there's a time when your kids might be fine, but they'll bring over uh, some other kid who's rolling her eyes at her mother, and she thinks that it's a good way to get your kids to join with her and split against you. Um, When I used to see that, I would point it out directly. But I would tell them, you keep it up, and I'm coming into your school's And I will give a lecture to your entire class on how the degradation of women and the put-down of women begins in the home with girls treating their mothers poorly. This is just an internalized hatred of the feminine, and it means that you're not feeling so good about yourself. Would you like me to come in and do that? I bet that settled everything. It settled everything because, you know, uh, at that age, when this starts to happen, 12, 13, 14, um, they their their highest morality at that time is to look good to their friends because they're Mm -hmm. trying to figure out who they are and they're individuating from their families and it's all that's all normal. Though I have to tell you, I think putting a bunch of eighth graders together in a room all day long and keeping them together for a year is distinctly abnormal. I don't think there's I
0: totally and completely agree. Yeah, there's
1: no (laughs) tribal society that would ever do that and I think that it leads to the eighth-grade horrors that everyone remembers the rest of their lives.
0: And then we wonder why we have difficulties when we isolate these eighth-graders with no one older or younger than themselves in the same building for long periods of time. No, it's just, it is absolutely (laughs) stupid. Right. Right. And, but, you know, we live with that. We're probably not going to
1: change that for those those who are listening. You're probably, your kid's going to have to go to seventh and eighth grade. And so... You know, you just don't, you you basically lovingly point out the behavior and say, this behavior is not loving. There must be a need that you have that you're not getting met. Would you like to talk about it? Mm
0: -hmm. Good advice. Very good advice. Well, we have so many other subjects that we would like to talk about. I mean, we never even got to talk about sex, but I think you're going to be on the Today Show. um, I am. I'm going to be on the Today Show. And is that a whole show uh, just about uh, girls and sex? Um or is that going to be about You know, everything. it's one segment that they have.
1: I don't know right. exactly when. It will be probably between somewhere between 8.30 and 9.30, I would say, okay. on, on May 11th. And I'm hoping I'll be interviewed by Katie Kirk before she leaves, which
0: mm-hmm. would be fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I have a lot to say about sex. There's quite a bit in the book. Um, Can you
0: give us a 30-second a something or other about sex? Well, maybe yes. we've got a minute or two.
1: Yeah, sex is the life force. And it is uh, one of our true sources of magic, pleasure, and ecstasy. And every girl should be in tune with her sexuality as a positive good in her life. It is energy. That doesn't mean she needs to go out and act on it in a way that will put her at harm or anyone else at harm. Good, a good sex life starts with appreciating your sexuality as part of being human all life on earth is sexually transmitted, and when you own your sexuality as a gift that you can choose or not choose to share with another, then you're on your way to a good, healthy sex life that will enhance your health on all levels.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, I, I, um, there are many other Sections that I'd love to talk about. I'd love to talk about things that are covered in the book, like uh, all kinds of addictions, food, uh, smoking, all kinds of things. uh, But we're not going to have time for that. We'll have to save that for um, another interview. Can you give us a little contact information, maybe your website where listeners can reach you?
1: Yes, my website is drnorthrup.com. I have a free monthly e letter if you click on to the community and sign up for that. You can get that. I love it. It's uh, something that I do every month. I also have a print newsletter through Hay House. You can sign up for that on my website. That is something that is a subscriber-based newsletter. comes either um, in the mail or um, electronically. Uh, my lecture schedule is on the website. There's, uh, that's always updated, and the website itself is rich with all kinds of information on the mother-daughter relationship and everything about the female body from the ovaries to the breast to the brain. So I think uh, it's worth logging into.
0: Wonderful. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this interview with you, and I look forward to more information on your newsletter. And uh, I just want to tell all our listeners that uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Northrop today, and we thank you very much for being with us. Uh, This is WERU Community Radio, and I've been your host, Andre Bella, today. We've been talking to Dr. Christian Northrup about her book, Mother-Daughter Wisdom, Understanding the Crucial Link Between Mothers, Daughters, and Health. And we'd also like to thank Amy Brown, our engineer, for helping us out today. Please join us again next month for another hour of Healthy Options, brought to you the first Wednesday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU, your community radio station.